1: Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I've got two, not one, but two timely discussions where I taped them both today, Wednesday. You're listening to it on Thursday. It's that timely. First, as you know, Twitter has a new CEO. So I talked to Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner about why Jack Dorsey left. Short version, it seems like he got at least some kind of push. Um, and what we ought to know about Parag Agrawal, his successor, and where Twitter is at in general right now. I used to work with Kurt back in the old days, and. He's very smart and very informed. That is a useful discussion. And then I wanted to learn more about the Biden administration's approach to big tech and antitrust in general. So I talked to New Yorker, Sheila Kolhatkar. She has a long profile out this week about Lena Khan, the very young and very interesting head of the FTC, who has made it very clear that she wants to be aggressive about scaling back the power and reach of big tech. And she's got a lot of obstacles in her way. It's really remarkable that Joe Biden, longtime Washington centrist, has appointed Khan and other antitrust activists in his administration, it is not something he campaigned on. And I spent a lot of time paying attention to what all the candidates said about tech and antitrust, and they didn't, none of them, besides Elizabeth Warren said much. Uh, so it's really interesting to talk to Cole Hatkar about sort of what that shift has been and, and where it's all gonna play out. I'm really curious to see where this goes. If you work in tech or media, you care about this stuff, you should be paying attention as well. Okay. so. First, here's Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner. I'm here with my former colleague who has left me. He's now at Bloomberg, Kurt Wagner. Hey, Kurt, nice to see you. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, Since we used to work together, I feel like I could tell this story now. Do you remember the first time someone told you that that, uh, Jack Dorsey was leaving Twitter?
2: I remember when Jack returned to Twitter and you and Kara we were on a silent train, I believe.
1: That was a good story, but there's another story that I was not involved in, involving you being at SantaCon in <laughs> New York City, and someone, and one of our colleagues prank called you and uh, told you that.
2: She's gonna love this. Yes, I was uh, at a bar, it had a great Saturday, and I uh, got a text that Jack was leaving Twitter. It was all a prank, I freaked out at the bar and- um,
1: That is journalism humor. But uh, Jack are. Dorsey has actually left Twitter. You found out- That's right. Probably very early Monday morning- Monday, On the yes. West Coast. Were you surprised to hear that Jack Dorsey was leaving Twitter? I was very
2: surprised. Um, obviously, for the last year and a half, we've been talking about uh, activist investors at Twitter. Elliott um, came in, took a stake. So Elliot
1: management, famous activist investors, right. famed for pushing people out of their jobs.
2: That's right. So the idea of Jack leaving was not surprising, but it felt like he had got through the hard part. Right? Um, I, I believe it was the day before the election, or, or right around there last year. They came out and basically issued a statement of support, saying, "Hey, we we you know feel that the management team at Twitter's in good shape. Here's a few things they've done. They set all these goals. Like we're we're happy." And so I thought that he had sort of survived that scare which is why it surprised me that now he would he would step away
1: so his his letter announcing his resignation it was it was a, it was weirdly it was, obviously it wasn't the way they wanted to roll it out the news first broke on cnbc that morning yeah. he had a letter prepared, but usually don't announce that you're leaving sort of on a monday morning right. um, that way uh he says it was his choice to leave do you understand what the actual backstory is of his departure so as far as I can tell, as
2: of now, it was indeed his choice to leave. However, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff leading up to this that I think um, is relevant. Of course, the Elliot stuff we just talked about. Uh, Peter, you actually tweeted about the succession plan that they put in place in November.
1: November um, kind of last of, year when Elliot was around. So you can sort of right. connect some dots. And there's a SEC filing that I tweeted out um, that says a year ago, we now have a succession plan.
2: Right. A strong signal, in hindsight, that, you know, maybe this was coming. But it doesn't sound as though he was necessarily, you know, given some ultimatum at the board recently. Now, I reserve the right to change that if I learn new things. That is what I've learned so far. It still feels, though, that we wouldn't be here if Elliot hadn't taken the stake that they did, hadn't applied a bunch of pressure on the business, and, of course, set in motion the the succession plan and other things we were talking about. So while I don't think he was pushed necessarily— I don't think he would be leaving if Elliott hadn't done what they did.
1: And to be clear, Elliott Management, run by this billionaire Paul Singer, they're activist investors, which is a fancy way of saying they're people who want their investment in a company to go up. And they'll say or do whatever they want the stock price to go up. Their argument when they first came in was, We think that Jack Dorsey shouldn't be running two publicly traded companies at the same time. And also we think Twitter is undervalued. It has a lot of impact on the world. They're not making enough money. We'd like to see other changes made. Are all of those criticisms fair? And and what, if anything, has Twitter done in response?
2: They are fair. Uh, very few publicly traded companies would be okay with a CEO who has another full-time CEO job. For some reason, Twitter was okay with that for six years. Now it has been. Um, that alone, I think, is enough of a reason for someone like Elliot to come in and have a fair criticism. And then you then you look at the business Twitter has, um, and the influence it has socially, culturally uh, does not align with how much money they make. And um, you could make a, a valid argument that it's super undervalued, and because they haven't capitalized on the fact they had the sitting president of the United States using their service 20 times a day for four years, and yet Twitter's valued at almost the exact same place it was you know, when it started— that that's a, a mismanaged opportunity, quite frankly.
1: You and I and lots of other folks noticed that over the last year, Twitter seemed to be moving much more quickly when it came to trying new products right. out, at, a, at least at a minimum. You know, they would they would try stuff, didn't always work, um, but people seemed to think that was something that was on the right track. Any other steps you could see that Dorsey and his, his managers underneath him took over the last couple of years that indicated things were changing? Well,
2: some of those products have revenue potential, which sounds obvious, um, but is, in fact, a step in the right direction for Twitter. Because up until now, most of what they did was simply make slight improvements to the main Twitter service. Now they're actually saying... Well, can we build new products that might actually make us money? And, and I Twitter think Twitter blue, we had Tony Hale on yeah. just
1: a couple of weeks ago to roll that that's out. Right. And that's not gonna be any that's not gonna be a meaningful amount of money anytime soon. No. It's a three dollar a month product for Twitter hardcore users. I mean
2: right. But the tell. fact that they're even building a subscription product, I think is an improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at uh, Spaces again, I don't think Spaces is lighting the world on fire. In fact, it's probably doing a lot worse than we think it is, but Again, it's That's their Clubhouse that's, clone. That's their Clubhouse audio, live audio. We could be doing this on Spaces if we weren't taping a podcast. You're on Spaces
1: um, a lot. Every time I open my Twitter, you're, you're, you're out yeah, there. I'm on Spaces like a
2: lot. And you could see how they could build an actual business around that. So I do think on top of the fact that they're building things quicker, they're actually building things that might lead to money. That is a good sign for Twitter.
1: And at the same time, Jack... Dorsey's bio uh, has a Bitcoin logo, or yeah. does it just say uh-huh. Bitcoin. He talks out loud and has built a little side project at Twitter about sort of, wouldn't it be great to have a decentralized crypto blockchain Web three version of this? Yep. He is running another company, and then even at this, and, and he also he never seemed like someone who really wanted to sit down and run a company full time. Famously, uh, the biggest decision in the last couple of years at of Twitter uh, to boot Donald Trump off the platform. He wasn't involved in it directly. It was one right. of his lieutenants. He was in French Polynesia at the time. I'm just trying to. I, I mean, clearly, he he got a push from Elliot management. Do you think he would have left on his own at some point anyway? It didn't seem like this is something that really commanded his full attention.
2: It's he's definitely become less engaged. And every conversation I've had uh, for the past few months has been a version of kind of we don't know what he's doing. And these are not even people necessarily criticizing him for that. They're just simply saying we don't we don't really know where he is. You know, he tweets about Bitcoin excessively. Um, he said that this uh, you alluded to this kind of open source decentralized social network thing. It's called Blue Sky. Uh, he said that that is his main focus. It's not actually something that operates inside of Twitter anymore. So, you know, that gives you a sense of maybe where that is. Um, and, you know, he he bought Tidal, the music streaming service at Square. A lot of people were kind of scratching their heads saying, you know, why is he spending $300 million on his buddy Jay-Z's company? So... I think he just look, answered that, by the way. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. His buddy's Jay-Z. Um, there's a lot of people wondering kind of where is Jack? What is he focused on? So I think this was probably going to happen at some point. I think that the added public pressure probably expedited things.
1: So in between the news that Dorsey was leaving and the confirmation that he was leaving, there was a very quick parlor game on Twitter and then and yes. back-channeling about who the replacements would be. I didn't hear or see anyone float the actual successor's name. Who is, who is Jack's successor, and, and, and what has he been doing up until now?
2: Yes, his name is uh, Prague Grawal, and he is uh, the former now cto of twitter so the chief technology officer uh he's been there more than a decade but you're right he is not someone who people know he's in fact of the you know they call it staff at twitter that's the top executive group um he's probably the person that would be least likely to take this job from a public persona standpoint right there's a lot of twitter executives who kind of have a a public persona because they're on Twitter and they tweet and we see them out and about.
1: They go to uh, conferences, they do exactly. interviews, um, et cetera. Parag is not that
2: person. Um, so the fact that he got the job sent some um, pretty immediate, I got a bunch of texts that were kind of like, whoa, what's going on? What is happening? But I think once you sit down and you look at what Prague has been working on, which is blue sky, shocker, Uh, Bitcoin and crypto related stuff. Uh, You can see that he has a lot of technical interests that align with Jack Dorsey's technical interests.
1: But if he's not, if if Jack Dorsey is leaving Twitter and he again resigned sort of immediately and and he's still going to be on the board for a few months, but he's leaving, does it matter that he was interested in stuff that Jack Dorsey was interested in? Um, Does that mean that he's going to send Twitter down a blockchain crypto path? Or is it a signal that actually what he's going to do is keep running Twitter more or less the way it has been? So why I think it matters is that if
2: Jack truly left on his own, which again, as far as I can tell, as of right now, yes, that means that he had a valid say in who got to take over for him. And if he has the choice between someone who aligns with all the things he cares about and maybe someone who is less interested, then, um, you know, he's obviously, I think, going to go with the person he thinks is going to kind of carry this mantle about, uh, you know, blockchain decentralization and stuff like that. So that's why I think it's relevant. I don't know what he's ultimately going to do because it's hard for me to imagine a Twitter that is super blockchain heavy that just you know it's it doesn't make as much sense as say square does
1: but It's a consumer-focused, yeah. ad-supported business. Right. Anything, any Anything that moves it away from that is a substantial change. And if you're bringing Correct. on someone who's from inside the company, hasn't signaled a great desire to do something different, it's hard to imagine something different. Tell us a little bit about Paragarwal. Um I'm assuming that you've been giving yourself a crash course over the last couple of days. I have. Who he is he, and what he's been doing.
2: Yeah. So he uh, – and I still have – have plenty to learn, but he, uh, like I said, he's been there about a decade. He's very, very technical. He's kind of, um, in some ways, maybe, uh, you know, your your cliche Silicon Valley engineer. Um, He went to I think he got a a graduate degree from Stanford. Um, The knock on him is that he's 37 years old, and he has been at Twitter for 10 years. So that doesn't leave a lot of time for him to have gotten much experience doing anything other than work at Twitter. And Peter, as you and I know, Twitter is not Historically, been the most um, you know well run, well structured company. So this is it's an odd place, and this is someone who has has seen all the ups and downs, but has not necessarily gotten the benefit of of working uh, at least for an extended period of time anywhere else. So, I think if you are um, you know critical of the new choice, it's probably for that reason. Like, does he have the experience that? is probably necessary to move Twitter somewhere new if he's been inside the company for 10 years. And this is really the the main job he's ever had.
1: I did some light reporting on Monday, found people who'd worked with him and they all said things like he's a serious and competent person and, and, right. and, you know, it's easy enough to work with. I had yet to hear someone point to a significant accomplishment. Yeah. Um, have you found one?
2: Well, the, the only thing I will say in his defense there is that a lot of deeply technical stuff doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh-huh. So while you're right, and I'm with you, I, I can't say like, oh, he built this thing that we all
1: know and yeah, love. Yeah, I'm not saying he's not a comp. I'm just saying right, I have yet right. to hear someone say, oh, he fixed this problem or oh, he 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 created so, a news, whatever. Right. Twitter Twitter loves to talk
2: about tech debt, um, which is a term that basically— that uh, it implies that they've been like living in the stone ages of, of technology. Yeah, um, and it that was built. It has, was built as a
1: side project to a podcasting right. business, right? Th- that was originally SMS for phones. Like they didn't imagine it was going to scale, and that's why it failed all the time. And that's what they're exactly. talking about, is digging out of that hole.
2: So presumably, Parag, for the last uh, four years as CTO, has been. You know, making significant changes behind the scenes to get Twitter out of tech debt—that is again not something that I am smart enough to, to fully like vouch for. But it's the argument I would say that people will make if they say you know, what has this guy done to, you know, earn this job, right?
1: There is a uh, uh, a lot of joking and maybe not so much joking about the fact that he immediately got, uh, as soon as yes. uh, Parag had, had, had announced that he was the CEO of Twitter, that uh, people seized on an old tweet he had referencing a daily show. It's a stupid, it's a yep. stupid thing to talk about, but it does point out that maybe either he wasn't fully ready for the announcement or hadn't thought through what was going to happen to his old, like anyone who's been on Twitter and been dunked on for something they said or did, whether it was dumb or not, has knows what that experience is like. It's Is it telling that, that he yes. wasn't ready for that?
2: I thought that was, when I first saw that, I, my first thought was, how did nobody go through all of his old tweets and just delete anything that could even be you know possibly controversial, or maybe they did and said
1: no, we're not. And so that's
2: not an issue because it's just a joke from the Daily Show, I think it was. But I thought this was really telling because this is the job that Jack has created as the CEO of Twitter. You are a Jack is a celebrity. He's a billionaire. He hangs out with Jay Z. He goes on yachts. He does all this thing. Parag is had like less than 100,000 followers. I think he had very, I don't remember where he started. I think he had 150,000 followers that first day and now has like 250,000. So he was very small in the, the footprint on Twitter compared to the guy he's mm-hmm. taking over for. And I just think it was a crash course into welcome to the job. You know, the job of being the CEO of Twitter is a very public job. You are now a celebrity. You are a Twitter celebrity, whether you want to be or not. And, um, you know, that comes with all the negative too, which is people digging up a tweet you sent 10 years ago. Let's
1: go back to Jack to finish this conversation. Sure. What, what Jack is, is a co-founder of Twitter. He was, I mean, famously uh, famous in tech world, bounced out. Relatively mm-hmm. early on, Twitter went through multiple CEOs. He came back was sort of very it was a, a lot of parallels to Steve Jobs, who was forced out of his company and came back and also ran more than one company at the same time. Um, what do we make of, of Jack's most recent tenure at Twitter?
2: I saw someone tweet yesterday. This is a Twitter employee, by the way, so take that context. But um, they said... If you think Jack did not save Twitter, you're crazy. And I th- I've been thinking about that for the last like 12 hours or so because, in some ways, despite all his failings um, in, in turning Twitter into a real huge business, which I don't think he did clearly, I do think there is an argument to, that he kind of saved Twitter in the sense that Peter, you probably remember, right when he came back, they did a sales process. There was a there was a chance it was going to get purchased by Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine if Salesforce bought Twitter like what it would be today? It would not be... There was a minute where Disney was interested in buying it. Disney thought about it, it, right? Um, So, in some ways, I think when Jack returned, he brought with him this quirky culture and this personality that, like, quite frankly, encompasses what Twitter is. It's this weird spot where everybody with an opinion can chime in and say whatever they want for better or worse. Um, and it exists in, in that way because I think Jack was the person he is. Now, there's a difference between being a, you know, a cultural leader and a business leader. And I don't think he he was a great business leader, unfortunately, which is why we're in the situation we're in right now, talking about him leaving, but I do think Twitter would be a different company and possibly be owned by some, you know, big tech enterprise company if it wasn't for Jack.
1: I do wonder what you think Twitter's future is because, you know, people are constantly sort of theorizing what you could and yeah. should do. Ben Thompson was suggesting this the other day, this thing should be a subscription business. I don't think that's right for a bunch of reasons, but it seems like this kind of might be what it is. It's it's a business with a lot of impact culturally that has a limited capacity to making money because there's a limited number of people using it. Sort of everyone yes. knows what Twitter is. People who are using it like using it. Everyone else is not using it. It's a free ad supported business. There's a limit to what you can do with that. Does it sort of just chug along, making incremental improvements? Does it make sense for Twitter to be owned by either another business or maybe even go private and just sort of say, you know, we're never going to have a, a Facebook or TikTok like trajectory, and this it is what it is? I
2: think that's more likely today than it was last week, for sure. I think uh, when you had the founder running it, who wanted to keep it independent. Um, you know, that, that's what it was. I think when you remove him from the equation, Twitter becomes a very interesting takeover target. Now
1: it's we should, we should say, by the way, that, that unlike most tech companies and several media companies, there's no sort of preferential stock. Uh, there's no right. multiple classes that's of, right. uh, of stock in Twitter. It's one of the reasons that Elliot management could come in and, and shake it up. Anyone can buy shares in Twitter. And, and, and if you have enough shares, you can do whatever you want with it.
2: And it's worth probably around what it was worth you know 4 years ago like this is not this is not a, a company that is like out of the realm of uh, acquisition for a big a big player so i have not heard anything to the extent of that happening i do think that that is a more likely outcome um, now than it would have been and quite frankly maybe it should be because as we pointed out if you can have uh the most social it has more impact people think twitter and facebook are on the same playing field, right? When you talk about, hey, who, who is the, what are the biggest tech companies in Silicon Valley? It's like, oh, there's Facebook and Google and Twitter. It's like, well, no, Twitter is one-tenth the size, one-fifteenth the size of these other companies, but it has such incredible clout um, that I think it would be an attractive, you know, piece of uh, another big tech company's portfolio. Um, and so I wouldn't be shocked if that happens, especially now that we don't have Jack Um, you know, running the show.
1: Is it significant that uh, the guy who's the chairman of Twitter's board is now basically running Salesforce? Oh, you mean the the company that almost bought Twitter four years ago?
2: Um, That is interesting. It's also interesting that the guy he took over for, I believe, was uh, formerly at Google. They've had a ton of Google people on their board over the years, and there's always been, you know, this idea that Google has missed out on social, and and
1: maybe Twitter fits that. So yeah, I don't, I don't think any of the big tech companies can make a giant acquisition in this. Political that's true. Planet. Yeah, so that's a fair I think it would point. have to be someone who's not in that world. Yeah, but, we'll um,
2: see. but I don't know. I mean, this that would be total speculation. It it will be interesting to watch though, and I have a hunch like. I don't know. This won't be the last time we talk about uh, Twitter as, as a takeover. I was hoping maybe it would be after we made it through the, the first round a few years ago. But
1: Kurt Wagner, great to have you on. Get some rest. Thanks, Peter. You deserve I it. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. good to see you. Bye. Thanks again to Kurt. We're going to talk to Sheila kohl from The New Yorker in a minute. But first, a word from a sponsor.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it <clears throat> a real POS? you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I'm here with Sheila kohl from The New Yorker. I'm a longtime fan of her work. She just wrote a big profile of Lena Kahn, who is 32 years old, is chair of the Federal Trade Commission. Did I get the title right? I was wondering. You make got sure I it. Get it. You right. nailed it as The as FTC. Usual. The FTC. She could have been a Wall Street Journal's commodity reporter instead she's running the FTC. Beyond that mini bio, who is Lena Khan and why should we pay attention to her? Why did you write a lengthy profile of her?
3: Well, when I started this piece, truthfully, it was almost a year ago, which is sort of embarrassing. But um, at that time, she was nowhere near the FTC. She was a professor at Columbia Law School. But she was credited with having maybe not initiated, but really provided a lot of fuel to this new antitrust movement that had been slowly infiltrating policy circles and the press and academia. Which um, you know advocated a much more aggressive sort of modernized view of antitrust, and a lot of that happened because of a paper that she wrote when she was a law student at Yale that uh, was very influential.
1: This is that she earned the the moniker the the hipster antitrust. I don't know was it the hipster antitrust movement or it's basically because she's young, right? Was that was that was why she was considered a hipster? There's nothing else I mean, to I have about, to. She's young. Argument. She's
3: yeah, she's young. She's a woman. She's a child of immigrants from Pakistan. I can imagine why there are people who would want to diminutize her in some way, but they would be making mm-hmm. a big mistake because she's she's a very smart sort of visionary thinker and. She's had a tremendous amount of influence in this area where there were many other much more traditional seeming people toiling away, trying to get attention. And, and, you know, they they had somewhat failed until she came along. She was the vehicle for this idea to spread.
1: So let's talk about that idea. So you point out that this is both a new idea and also an old one. Her her vision of antitrust diverts from what we've been taught is, is the correct way to view antitrust over the last several decades. But summarize what that is and, and how that's different from what we've been learning for the last, you know, since since the 70s and 80s.
3: Well, so um, in the 80s, uh, a very critical shift happened in the thinking around antitrust and in just sort of corporate America in general, which was a, just a move towards free market uh, thinking. Like the market should decide, the market knows best, let's just unleash uh, all these corporations from regulations and government interference. And the antitrust version of that suggested that um, there was nothing wrong with with companies merging and getting bigger and bigger, as long as it didn't harm consumers in terms of the prices they were paying for products. And they mm-hmm. called this a cons- the consumer welfare standard. So, you know, if you had two really, uh, the two prominent uh, mobile phone companies wanting to merge, well, if they could credibly argue that, you know, mobile phone contracts won't, become more expensive, then you should just let that merger happen.
1: Right. And when we get to the internet world where products are are cheap and getting cheaper and often are free, that essentially allowed Google and Facebook and the other big tech companies to get as big as they wanted to because you could never argue that consumers are being harmed in terms of prices.
3: Yeah, that was the the tech world, uh, particularly, um, you know, sort of social media platforms, other kinds of online platform companies really showed the limitations of this thinking. Because yes, a lot of their products to consumers are free. Uh, They also benefit from these sort of exponential growth patterns, network effects, people call them, um, where they can become infinitely large. And the way that those companies make money is often a little bit different from what we're used to seeing where you have a company selling detergent and people go to the store and buy it. These companies are monetizing the activity online of their users. And the users are often not even paying to use these platforms or they're getting free shipping. You know, Amazon has made a lot of prices right. cheaper by being willing to sell right. them. Consumers love cost. Amazon,
1: right? It's yeah. right. Consumers love Amazon. They're not generally complaining about them. It's cheaper, it's quicker, it's better. There's no harm being done. So Khan comes in and says, no, this doesn't work. And she's gone from being an academic to actually running the FTC. She's part of a cohort of people the Biden administration has put into power that signals a new approach to antitrust. So how is that manifesting in reality, and going from academics to reality?
3: Well, it's challenging. So, So her whole argument is that you cannot just look at consumer prices. And she would say that this applies not just to tech companies, but all different kinds of companies. There's been tremendous consolidation across industries, from very traditional old-school industries like poultry, packaging, uh, consumer products, industrial products. There's been a tremendous amount of conglomeration. So this is happening across the economy, but it's very, very obvious in tech, as you pointed out. So so she would say, well, when you're analyzing whether a merger, for example, is anti-competitive or violates antitrust laws, you cannot just look at consumer prices. You have to look at how this giant company can exert power more broadly in the economy. Uh, Will this merger harm democracy? Will this merger lead to uh, lower wages for workers? Will it lead to environmental harms because the company is so large and it doesn't have competitors it can sort of do whatever it wants? Uh, Will this decrease leverage on the part of consumers, policymakers? Will this company have uh, political power that uh, puts it in a position where it can manipulate the political process. So, sh- so she's saying you have to look at all these other factors. It's much broader than just consumer prices and consumer welfare. And there are a lot of people in Washington who agree. Um, now, the tricky thing about that is uh, even if everyone sort of agrees that you need to you need to step in when a company is so large and powerful that it potentially threatens democracy, you know, it's unclear whether antitrust law is going to be an effective way to counter that and prevent that from happening. It, it is really limited in some ways because uh, antitrust is ultimately adjudicated by the courts. So, um, you know, the court system and judges who make decisions have been steeped in one way of thinking that really took off in the early 80s and has been very dominant for decades those people might not see antitrust problems the same way that Lena Khan does, and this is going to be right. a and, real and challenge. And
1: you, you- You quote a former uh, Obama advisor who says something along the lines of, look, you can have lots of criticisms of these big companies, but just because they're big and doing things you don't like doesn't mean that you can necessarily apply antitrust law. Um, Now, Khan is suing Facebook. She's picked up a suit that was started in the Trump administration. She's refiled it. Um, Should we expect that she is going to bring similar suits or actions against all of the big tech companies? Or do you think that uh, uh, Facebook is going to be unique?
3: Well, so so um, the, the different branches of the government have been investigating, you know, antitrust issues at the big tech platform companies for, you know, more than a year now. And the different agencies have sort of divvied up the cases. So uh, the Justice Department has taken the Google case. The FTC mm-hmm. has taken the Facebook case. Uh, I don't actually know exactly what's going on with Amazon, but they're being investigated too, and and there there are no doubt other investigations, and we'll hear about them over time. But these things are kind of interesting. They're they're like, um, you know, orchestra performances. You have uh, state attorney generals, you have like prosecutors, you have FTC lawyers, you have DOJ lawyers, all investigating antitrust at these tech companies, and then they have to figure out who's going to actually file the lawsuit. So yes, Lena inherited the Facebook case. Uh, That case was filed uh, towards the end of the Trump administration. A few months later, a judge dismissed the case and was quite scathing in his opinion and just sort of said, you completely failed to even, you know, provide any evidence that this company is a monopoly. You say it's a monopoly in social networking. Well, what's your proof of that? But the judge also left them some avenues to kind of refile the case. So that happened under Lena Kahn's watch. And, um, It's going to be very interesting to see. I think there are a lot of people who really think Facebook is causing significant harm in the world, and it is undermining democracy and spreading fake news and, you know, facilitating genocides around the world and so on. But it's unclear whether uh, antitrust law is going to be the way to fix that. And um, she's seeking to break the company up.
1: Yeah, she wants them to unwind the Instagram deal and the WhatsApp deal. One near-term effect of of that suit is that it seems like Facebook, and I've done some reporting on this, has stopped trying to do anything related to social networking in terms of M&A. But as I reported, they have been going out and spending billions of dollars on what we're now just gonna call metaverse acquisitions, uh, virtual reality, gaming. Do you have any sense of of what, and I couldn't get anyone from, from the FTC to talk about this on the record. Do you have any sense of of how they view Facebook going out and bulking up in a new new part of tech while they're being sued for a monopoly in social networking?
3: Well, they've made it pretty clear that they do not like the idea of companies that are already dominant becoming even larger, even if they're expanding into sort of adjacent areas. They've made that very Mm -hmm. clear. That is again happening in a lot of industries right now. There's this huge boom in M and A uh, activity right now among tech companies, but uh, non-tech companies too, like insurance, airlines, you know, healthcare. Yep. And the FTC, Lena Khan has just said, you you know, we're going to be a lot tougher in reviewing these mergers. We will revisit mergers that have already closed that we didn't challenge at the time. You shouldn't assume that if the FTC doesn't do anything before your deal closes, that we won't look at it later and decide it was anti-competitive. And she just created it more of an assumption of sort of skepticism towards companies that are already dominant. So e- even if we're not going
1: to throw ourselves in front of a particular deal, we might come back later. So just be warned. Yeah. You, you list uh, in your piece a whole series of, of recent mergers and proposed mergers. One of them is, is AT&T handing off Warner Media to Discovery. In, in my world, people I talk to, they just all sort of assume that deal is going to go through and the AT&T and Discovery folks act, talk about it as if it's going through. Do you have any sense that, that she will pay attention to that deal? She's already signaled that she's going to pay attention to Amazon's attempt to buy MGM. Um, Should we assume the, the Warner media discovery deal goes through, or do you think she might stop it? I wouldn't.
3: Yeah, I would not assume anything. now I will say um, it somewhat depends who's reviewing that deal. And anytime a deal is announced, uh, Again, there's like a little turf war between the Justice Department and Mm -hmm. the FTC, and they divide them up. And I'm actually not sure whether she or the DOJ are reviewing uh, that particular deal. I I will note that um, the DOJ just said that they were going to file a lawsuit to block uh, Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House from merging, another media deal. And that was another one. I mean, as an author, I had been a little shocked when I heard about that deal being announced. It just seemed kind of... Obviously anti-competitive to me, but what do I know? But apparently everyone in the industry expected it to get waved through. This is what I've heard. And the Justice Department, which has also been staffed with very Lena Kahn like-minded folks, have said, no, they're going to block that deal.
1: Yeah, you're describing a real sea change in in the way they view these deals. Something else that I thought was very telling in your piece was a quote from Khan. Again, I'll paraphrase saying, look, I'm not just gonna go, I'm not just gonna um, launch lawsuits where I know I can win. I might do lawsuits where it's actually a high degree of difficulty and there's a good chance I won't win. I still think it's worth doing. That seems very different to me than the way I've been taught prosecutors always uh, behave, which is even if they think there's a real problem, they're not going to go forward with the case unless they're reasonably sure they can win it. What does she think the the, what is her rationale for pursuing a case where there's a decent chance she's not going to succeed?
3: So so, yeah, regulators, particularly the FTC, are always criticized for being cowardly and risk averse. And, uh, she, you know, and the result of that has been a lot of consolidation and things getting waved through. So she's saying, okay, we are not going to be so risk averse. We're going to be more willing to take risks. And I think she, she, she sees her role partly as setting the tone around this issue of antitrust and monopoly. And she says that, um, you know, she, she, part of her role is to signal to Congress that the FTC thinks there's a problem in the economy. And if the FTC does not have the sort of legal or regulatory tools in its particular area to address this problem, she thinks Congress should, should do something. And of course, there are dozens of bills being talked about at different stages to try and, mm-hmm. you know, deal with tech, but other more, broad, you know, sort of, broadly define antitrust issues, so we'll have to see how those go, because Congress is having serious problems, you know, passing important legislation right now, as we've seen. But um, she seems to be, she seems aware that there's a lot of risk of failure in the courts of some of these, like, really ambitious, important cases, but she thinks it's important to try anyway, because she doesn't, well, she specifically said, I don't want people to think that the FTC doesn't think there's a problem with this. You know, the, Facebook. So we are gonna. This is a
1: very, uh, this is a very expensive and arduous <laughs> signaling process in some ways. Yeah. Instead of I, a, just I mean, putting out a stern tweet, we're gonna go to court just so that Congress can see that we need more support here.
3: And it can be, you know, there are risks. that can be demoralizing to the staff who work on those cases. It takes a lot of resources. They're probably gonna have to hire a lot of people. Um, they're gonna need a, a budget increase. But she has a point that just by doing nothing. Because they don't have resources um, or even because they think they might fail, uh, it allows the companies out there to say, well, the FTC thought it was fine. And she's, mm-hmm. her point is— You can't, is, you can't
1: complain because you said this was okay.
3: Exactly. She's saying, no, we have to telegraph Which is telegraph Facebook's a, argument now. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and Facebook has a point. But so she's saying we have to telegraph that there's a problem. You know, and they're really the way that they can do that is by bringing cases.
1: She's also made a point uh, this fall of saying, by the way, we just completed this review of, of 600 some tech deals done over the last decade that didn't require a review and kind of didn't say anything else beyond that. But to me, she's saying these sort of things should be reviewed or should be stopped. Some of these are. Very big deals, but still didn't didn't qualify for review. And some of them are aqua hires. What's your sense of what she wants to do there? Because this is just has been for the last decade, plus standard for big tech companies. You buy smaller tech companies, you move on. It's, it's just the standard way of doing business. Do we think that's going to change?
3: I thought that that was a really interesting move, that the way they published that report listing off all those deals. I mean, I think, again, it was a tone-setting thing and putting that industry on notice. And she was, you know, she was trying to convey that people shouldn't assume that things are going to go on the way they have been with all this, like, consolidation just being waved through and happening in a fog. She's going to be paying a lot closer attention. And if you look at the larger sort of business landscape for big tech, there are signs that this, some of this is working on some level. I mean, for example, Apple just announced that they're going to make it possible for consumers to fix their products. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they're going to – I don't know exactly how that's going to look, obviously, and I'm sure they'll find some way to make money from it. But the fact is that companies like Apple have resisted that. They have controlled access
1: They've to actively campaigned against yeah. against laws that would give you the ability to fix your own it's phone. It's
3: crazy. You can't fix your own stuff. It's your product. Why can't you fix it? But So anyway, it's, it's kind of crazy, and companies are making these changes like this kind of preemptively because they know – uh, there's all this scrutiny, and then the will to, to kind of come after them is much greater. And so they are a little nervous, and so you do see them doing things like that preemptively. And that's in a way, is sort of an ideal situation. It's much better if the companies start to behave a little better without the government having to kind of come down on them. So I'm sure she's looking at that and thinking, okay, some of this is working. You know, I'm, the message is getting out.
1: Lena Khan is not the only antitrust appointee that uh, we've seen. Tim Wu is, has, a, has an important position. John Cantor has a, is maybe the most important. He's running the antitrust group at, at, for the DOJ. If this was a Elizabeth Warren administration, this would make sense to me because this has been Elizabeth Warren's a big thrust of, of, of her politics for the last several years. I don't remember Joe Biden saying really anything about big companies, certainly about big tech. I think maybe he said something to the effect of like he'd like to see Section 230 revised or, or, or abolished. But I don't remember him saying anything about this as a campaigner. Who, who within his administration is pushing for this?
3: That's a big question that I had, too. I was very intrigued somebody clearly got to him. Uh, truthfully, I think as years go by, the um, influence of Elizabeth Warren uh, on the Biden administration, that story has not fully been told. But I think that the influence she's had on him is huge. Um, it's not just an antitrust. She, her former policy people are sprinkled all over the place. It's kind of amazing including um, the CFPB is now run by Rohit Chopra, who was at the FTC, but he kind of came up under Elizabeth Warren when that agency first started. So she has sprinkled her people all throughout the administration. That's the these Consumer
1: terms. Financial Protection Board that she had created after the, the bank collapses of 2008.
3: Yeah, to, meant to help protect consumers from predatory bank behavior. So she, uh, I think she's had an enormous behind-the-scenes influence. And I think she's also been a little bit savvy about not advertising it because she knows that She's kind of polarizing to some people, and it will be unhelpful. But if you look at the pattern, um, a lot of people come from her orbit. They were trained by her. They developed their worldview. And a lot of them have experience dealing with the financial crisis. I found a lot of people have been radicalized seeing what that did to the middle class and who got bailed out and who didn't.
1: Yeah, and it's fascinating that she has gotten to him if that's the case, but someone has gotten to him and and he's he's staffed his administration with people who have these views. It's one thing to put those people in power or to give them those positions. It's another thing to spend political capital on that. Do you think Biden is going to be out stumping and 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 taking public positions on this or do you think he's content to let his appointees do it?
3: I don't know. I I I it's a bit of a mystery what Biden actually um believes deep down. (laughs) I mean, I agree with the many of the the appointments he's made. I think they were smart, but um, I don't know. I think it will depend somewhat on which way the political wind is blowing at that moment and whether it seems like it will be helpful. I I mean, we saw Elizabeth Warren ran in the Democratic primary for president and she did not do well. And I, I, you know, we still don't really fully understand whether that was because people were um, seeking a very middle ground, familiar candidate who could challenge Donald Trump, or they just did not like her ideas and her. You know, it's still one it's really one of those two things. But she did not succeed uh, when she when she didn't I don't think she would want a single state in the primary,
1: yeah. Joe Biden antitrust reformer is a, is an interesting twenty twenty one story. Um, thank you for Unexpected. writing the story on Lena Khan. And thanks for coming on the show.
3: It was my pleasure. Thanks.
1: Thanks again to Sheila. Thanks again to Kurt. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani for producing and editing. As always, thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free for zero dollars. And thanks to you guys for listening and writing and telling other people about it. I always like to hear what you have to say, even if it's not positive. I mean, generally, I prefer the positive stuff. Anyway, you know what I mean? Um, Got a fun, timely interview for you next week. I'm confident in asserting that. Uh, We may see you on a special day. We'll see you next week. Bye.